Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I am an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior writer and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Chris, how was your New Year's? Uh... It was good. How I did nothing, but I'm fine with that. How about you? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Um, we had a, a very small group, I think like four people outside in, in our backyard sitting around a, a table and just sort of hanging out. So hopefully, you know, it's as safe as we could be. I know it's a sort of a, a scary time out there again for a lot of people right now. And hopefully all the listeners are, are doing well and rang in the new year in, in a good way. So uh, let's get into what we've been up to, Chris. Um, you've been reading some stuff recently. Yeah, I've been reading a few things, but I want to talk about um, this book I just finished called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of, I forgot to put the full title there, because I copied it wrong, <laughs> The Secret History of the 60s is the full title. And uh, so this book is basically like the book version of that It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia meme where... Uh, Charlie has all that stuff on the, the cork board and it's got <laughs> yes. like, a, and he's like smoking a cigarette and he's <laughs> looks insane. And that's what this book is. So, um, Tom O'Neill, uh, he was a writer for, um, 
premier magazine, which is not around anymore, but it used to be a film magazine. And uh, his editor hired him to write a retrospective on uh, you know, the, the Manson family murders uh, from the point of view of Hollywood, because obviously they, they took they happened in in Hollywood and they, they shook up not just the world, but they really shook up the Hollywood community because uh, for a while there, for, for a few weeks, really, or maybe even months no one knew who did this. It wasn't like they were all like, ah, Charles Manson did this. Like, so everyone was like, what the hell is going on? Is someone like going around targeting, you know, movie stars? Mm-hmm. And so that was supposed to be the basis of the article. And so Tom O'Neill, he started digging into this and he, he talked to Vincent Biliosi who wrote, uh, he was the prosecutor in the Manson family trials. And he wrote the, the, the book, which is uh, considered you know the be all end all on the subject, Helter Skelter. And he started interviewing more people. And the more he interviewed people, the more he started to feel like the official story of what happened didn't quite add up. And it's not so much that he doesn't think the Manson family was involved. He's not like, ah, they're innocent. You know, he does think they're involved, but he also starts to uncover all this stuff that makes it seem like the whole thing was like, had something to do with like the CIA and the JFK assassination and uh, you know, how, how the government was trying to infiltrate uh, radicals during the sixties and turn them against each other and all this stuff. And man, this is a wild book. Um, You know, I should say, I don't, I don't buy any of this stuff. (laughs) And uh, it's, it was kind of a frustrating read because, he'll point out stuff and he'll be like, how do you explain this? And and I, as I'm reading it, I'll be like, I can easily explain that without even like looking it up, Tom. I don't know what you're doing here. So, uh, you know, I, I know I'm making it sound like this is a bad book, but it's a fascinating book because to, to his credit, Tom O'Neill keeps pointing out that he's like, I'm starting to sound like a conspiracy theorist. And, you know, everyone he talks to is like, this sounds insane. What are you talking about? So it's kind of a, just a fascinating book because in his defense, there are some things that don't entirely add up. And even when he's interviewing Vince Bliosi, who's, who's dead now, but when he was, you know, he interviewed him when he was alive, obviously he, he confessed that maybe he got some things wrong in the trial, but he got the overall gist of it. Right. And that was to get, you know, these people convicted, but. And there's like historical precedent for, for some of the stuff he's talking about too, right? Like the, the CIA, like we know now actually did some super shady shit and they were like, you know, uh, targeting Martin Luther King. And like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that like, I think people would have looked at and, and thought of as like, oh, that's just crazy talk. And then it came out, you know, years later, oh, this stuff was actually happening. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not defending the CIA here. They're a giant evil (laughs) government (laughs) entity with no oversight. And they, you know, they can do whatever they want. They're like, you know, uh, there's, there's nothing good about the CIA, but uh, do I think the CIA had anything to do with the Manson murders? No, I, I I would say that's probably pushing it. But it this is a fascinating insight into you know the murders, and also he talks about uh, the factual stuff. He talks about how the CIA infiltrated college campuses around this time, and were trying to you know sow discord amongst radicals and and people they they, you know they labeled as communists you know (laughs) united states government their whole thing is if you're a communist it's bad and that they don't give a shit about anything else you know they're they're willing to work with nazis if it means they can stop communists because that's that's how the the united states government operates and uh so just reading about that stuff and and watching as he tries to connect it all together you know like that it's always sunny in Philadelphia meme just just really fascinated me. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say read this if you want to 
learn the truth about what happened with the Manson murders. But if you're interested in that sort of weird, you know, that the era this takes place in, you know, that sixties era, I do think it's a, a really fascinating book. Awesome. So that's called chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the secret history of the sixties. Uh, man. Yeah. That sounds like, yeah, if nothing else, just a, an interesting look into like a, um, what is that word? Like, a the milieu, uh, you yeah. know, of, of that era or whatever, but, yeah. uh, all right, let's get into what we've been watching. Chris, you've been, you've been catching up on some stuff over the break. Yeah. So, uh, my wife and I started watching station 11, which is currently airing on HBO. Uh, I, I think there's maybe three episodes left. Um, uh, there, there have been seven so far and I'm all caught up on the seven that aired. And uh, this is based on a book, and um, it's it's uh, weirdly timely because it's uh, it takes place in two different timelines. So the first timeline is what we would consider the present, and it's it takes place as this super flu breaks out, and uh, it has like a one in one millionth survival rate. So it just like kills off pretty much the world, and uh, then it it jumps further into the future, you know, the aftermath, the post-apocalyptic world, where some survivors have banded together, and they formed this um, traveling theater troupe that, like, they go around performing Shakespeare, but you know, there's no electricity, there's no uh, any of that stuff. It's, it's like, you know, just this sort of strange back-to-nature sort of thing. And this is just a really fascinating, really good show. Um, it's a it's a little hard to watch because not only, you know, not only does it have the whole the whole plague thing going for it, but the plague breaks out during Christmas, and like watching it with you know Christmas still uh, sort of linger around, mm-hmm. it makes you kind of feel like oh, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> like there's yeah. there's like an entire episode like set in an airport uh, as the as the flu is breaking out and. Uh, and you know, there's stuff where people are, are trying to go to Christmas events and they can't because people start dying suddenly. So it's not a pleasant show, but, uh, it, it's, it's just really held my interest. It's really fascinating. It's really well acted. Um, Mackenzie Davis is on it and she's very good, uh, usually, and she's very good here. I was wondering about this, Chris. I was wondering if you were going to watch this because I, I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I bought the book like, I don't know, uh, six months, a year ago, whatever it was, and it's still sitting on my shelf. And I kind of want to read the book before I watch the show. And knowing that it's on HBO Max, I'll, I'll, I know that it'll be there for me whenever I'm done reading the book. But, um, you know, you and I have talked on this podcast before about like, ah, I don't know, about like pandemic related uh, fiction or uh, media, yeah. you know, during this time. So I was, I was curious if you were going to. Uh, dip your toe into the Station Eleven waters uh, because of the the um, yeah weird timeliness of it all. You know, uh, so two things. One, when I first said that, when we first said that, it felt like the pandemic was going to be over. <laughs> <laughs> right. And now I, I think we've we've crossed that threshold where if you start make if everyone starts making things that completely ignore the pandemic, it actually is going to start seeming weird now because we're you know we're too plus years into this and it's like i guess we can't ignore it at this point and the other thing is uh you know the, the fact that this this isn't actually covid-19 it's it's a flu mm-hmm. it makes it a little easier for me to like you know it's not like I feel like if they were constantly being like, it's COVID, I'd be like, I don't yeah. want to watch this. So. Yeah. And or I don't know. I mean, for me, it seems like 
it, it helps knowing that the book came out in what, like 2014 or something like yeah. well before this happened. It's not like trying to capitalize on it. They were actually like filming the, from what I understand, they were filming the show, you know, before the pandemic began and then had to stop production like every other show uh, because of COVID. And that must've just been like super surreal for the people making this, uh, this series to have it become prescient in real yeah. time. That's just really bizarre. But um yeah, man, I've heard so many good things. So I'm glad that you you like it, and I'm, I'm definitely it's on my list of things to check out. I've heard it's like excellent stuff. I think uh, Hiro Murai, the, the director of um, several episodes of uh, of Barry in Atlanta, is is one of the the people behind the camera on this. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah good stuff. All right, so that's Station Eleven. That's on HBO, HBO Max. Uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, this is another HBO show. Um, it's I guess it's more of a mini series because it was only four episodes. But it's called Landscapers, and uh, I've seen all this. It's our, it's this. All of this is available on HBO. Um, this is based on a true story of uh, this couple. Uh, they were uh, they were English or British or whatever. What is the correct term? Yeah, that's a good question. I never know which. I, <laughs> they were from I, the United Kingdom. Yeah, Let's there see. we go. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, they were living abroad and. Uh, through a series of seemingly unlikely events, it came out that uh, the parents of uh, the, the wife in the fa- in, in of the couple uh, were murdered and buried in their backyard. And um, the, the show is trying to explain how that happened and who these people are. Uh, Olivia Coleman and Davis Lewis are the couple, uh, you know, who are accused of the murder. And Olivia Coleman obviously is uh, fantastic. You know, she's, She's one of the best in the biz and she's great here too. And uh, this is just a really fascinating show because it doesn't really take sides because when you hear the explanation for why the murder happened, you sort of kind of believe what the, what's being said and you could sort of kind of have sympathy for these accused murderers. And then at the same time, they'll show the cops investigating the case and the, the cops will be poking all these holes in in the story and you start to be like, well, maybe they are full of shit. Maybe they, you know, they're making all this up and it, and, but the show never gives you like a definitive, it's never like, this is what really happened because uh, you know, the real couple to this day, they maintain their innocence. You know, they say we didn't do it. So the show never comes down one way or the other on, on the matter. And I, I kind of like that ambiguity and it's also really stylishly done. Like this could have been told in a very, straightforward way but the show is like constantly shifting uh aspect ratios and it'll jump from color to black and white and uh there's like an entire episode that's because olivia coleman's character is obsessed with westerns there's like an entire episode that recreates events as if they were in a western even though it's obviously that's not how that really happened so Hmm. it has all these really interesting neat little stylish touches that just make the show even more interesting so i really dug this I saw a trailer for this and was fascinated by it and just it completely missed me that this was even out and available. So now I'm, I'm, I guess I'm glad that it's all there and I can just like watch the whole thing in one chunk. But um, I was looking while you were talking about it to see who was the, the sort of uh, brains behind this thing. And it looks like this guy named Will Sharp directed this. And I know that the only other thing, one of the other big things that he directed recently was um, called The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne, which I think yes. you've seen, Chris. Did you enjoy that movie? I did. It was okay. It wasn't great. This is definitely better than that. I wouldn't say that movie was bad. It just was sort of like, 
that was fine. Whereas, okay. you know, this, I was like, oh, that was really good. So, you know, that, that's the, that's the distinction. Okay. All right. So that's called Landscapers and that is also available on HBO and HBO Max. Uh, what else have you been watching, Chris? Uh, I watched Pain and Gain, which is the Michael Bay movie. Uh, uh, had you seen it before? I actually had, I, I watched like five minutes of it one night while like very sleepy and I fell asleep and I never bothered to rewatch it. So uh, I was like, I'm going to sit down and watch Pain and Gain finally. <laughs> and I'm glad I did because this is obvious. This is like without a question, Michael Bay's best movie. Okay. I was really curious because I saw this movie in 2013 when it came out and I remember thinking the same thing, but I have not vi- revisited it since then. And it's been what, eight years now, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I was curious if it, if it sort of held up or if somebody who watched it now would have that same thought about it being, you know, upper, ech- upper, uh, upper echelon or upper tier Michael Bay. And I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you're sort of justifying that thought. I definitely think it is. I mean, for one, th- you know, it's, it's not his typical movie. Uh, you know, it's not really an action movie. It's more of a, I don't even call it a thriller. It's like a dark comedy basically. And uh, it, it's based it's based on a true story of these uh, lunk-headed bodybuilders who uh, you know murdered some murdered two people uh, but first they they kidnapped a, a millionaire and made him sign over all his money and his property to them and uh, you know this this recounts that story and this is such a fascinating movie because it's it it's so mean and vile and you you know if if you had these suspicions uh, that Michael Bay is kind of like just hates humanity. I feel like this movie really confirms that he just hates everyone. He's just a, a, a misanthrope, I guess, who just loathes people in general. And because everyone here is just reprehensible and that could have backfired because, you know, sometimes it's hard to watch movies where all the characters are loathsome. You know, I'm not saying I need movies to always have likable characters, but it, it can be difficult to watch movies like that. And, you know, Michael Bay, man, he uses his his style, uh, his stylistic touches to to make this all work. And the cast is really good, too. You know, um, Mark Wahlberg, uh, you know, say what you will, but he's really good at playing idiots. <laughs> he yeah. plays he plays a complete idiot here who doesn't seem to realize that he's like a, a sociopath who, you know, he thinks everything he's doing is completely justified and it's clearly not. And uh the rock is in this and the rock is really good in this. Yeah. And this is one of those examples. I, I think we've talked about this before where I hate that the rock is in this, this phase now where he's just basically always playing himself and he's always making these, you know, blockbusters that appeal to the widest possible audience. Like, obviously it makes sense for him because he wants to make money, but he's, you know, if he pushes himself, he can be a good actor and he's a good actor in this because He's playing against type. Like, yes, he's he's a bodybuilder in this, but he's playing like this coked out bodybuilder who loves Jesus. And it's just really <laughs> just it's surreal to watch him play that because I can't imagine the, the rock of today coming anywhere near a movie like yeah. this. Like yeah. he, he'd be like, absolutely not. But the fact that, you know, he challenged himself to do it at the time is is really interesting. And he's really good in the part. And I, I do wish we had gotten more of the rock challenging himself. But, you know, again, he is, he's obscenely wealthy and wildly successful. He does not, he does not need my advice, but it's just, just my personal preference. Yeah, man. I remember thinking that the cast, like everybody, I mean, even like Anthony Mackie, who has like a smaller role in the movie. I just remember thinking like, everybody's really in the pocket in this movie. Like it just feels like they're all like doing exactly what they should be doing at that point in their careers. And it's, I, I was, I was hopeful that maybe we would get more like that from all of them. And it seems like, 
all three of those guys have like pivoted in, in totally different directions where it's kind of difficult to, to imagine all three of them coming back and, and doing yeah. something like that. Um, so that's kind of, it's kind of depressing, but it's also good. You know, we, we had the, this one shining moment of painting game back in 2013. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, where Anthony Mackie gets stabbed in the dick. If I remember right with, uh, <laughs> with some sort of, uh, uh, what was it, like a, a, hypodermic needle yeah yeah yes. something like that yeah uh so anyway the, the glory days of cinema for sure um okay so you watch one more thing chris uh yes i rewatched dune for the first time since i saw it uh i saw it at tiff so i saw it in theaters at the toronto film festival and i wanted to rewatch it on hbo max when it was on there and i just never got around to it uh, but I got sent the, the Blu-ray, the upcoming Blu-ray, or it might actually be already out on Blu-ray. Either way, it's it'll you'll have it soon. And um, uh, I, I got this is probably going to sound weird because you know so much of the movie was uh, marketed as like see it on the biggest screen possible. But I think I actually liked it more at home, and I I don't really have an, a reason for that. <laughs> and I'm like ah, oh, this is why I liked it more. I just I found myself connecting with it a lot more this time than I did when I saw it in, in the theater. And I didn't dislike it when I saw that tip. I thought it was good, but I also, when I saw that tip, I kind of walked into the theater being like, that was good, but I don't see what all the, what all the fuss is about. But watching it now again at home, I was like, damn, this is a, a really great modern day blockbuster. Like, you know, especially in the sea of, uh, modern blockbusters where everything sort of just feels and looks the same. Uh, this is, this is a great example of, you know, you can still do something unique with a, with a big blockbuster if you have the right people involved and just like, you know, uh, everything about the, just the way it's designed and the, and the costumes and that, that Hans Zimmer score, which just is fantastic. And I love how like gigantic everything feels in this movie. Yeah. Like it just feel like, uh, Dennis, Dennis Vanilla, however you say his name, uh, he's really good at, at scope and scale. Like when you watch like Arrival and the way he shoots the, you know, those weird uh, spaceships and, and the, the hectopods and stuff like that. He's really good at, at conveying the size of a thing. And there are all these shots in Dune where characters are like standing against just gigantic structures and it feels really like a, a real lived in world. And that's not easy to do because, you know, they're take your pick. There are a billion, you know, there's, you, know, like, you can look at uh what the hell is that movie called? Where all the cities are on wheels, like oh, yeah. <laughs> mortal engines. Yeah. Like, look at that. They're, that's going for sort of the same thing and no one cared. Whereas this, it works. It looks amazing. It looks fantastic. So uh, I, I don't know if it's just, you know, I had more time to reflect on it or what, but watching it again at home made me, like it even more than I already did. So Dune, good movie. Was it the subtitles, Chris? Did that have anything to do with that? I remember no, that I, was a talking point. I actually didn't put the subtitles on. I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna try again. And again, I don't know, maybe just because maybe I had maybe I have better speakers on my TV than the theater I saw this in. Because mm, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes theaters have shitty sounds, you know, even though they shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know, just something about watching it again this time at home. Uh, really connect with me. So Dune. Yeah, good stuff for sure. It looks like the Blu-ray will be uh, officially released on January 11th. So just ah. a few days from now. Um, okay. Yeah, Chris, I wonder how much of that, I mean, I'm not like trying to uh, 
uh, maybe I shouldn't even say this because it's going to sound like I'm trying to devalue your experience or throw some sort of like caveat on it. But I wonder how much of it is like uh, at the very end of the year, looking back on something and being like, well, compared to all the other stuff that we got for the rest of the year, you know, like when you saw this in whatever it was, September, October, or whenever, yeah. there was still, you know, several months to the year left and like all the good stuff was supposed to be coming out and like maybe, um, I don't know, I, I feel like sometimes maybe for summer blockbuster stuff, I kind of like hedge my bets a little bit of like, uh, you know, this is good, but like these things that I'm excited about are still coming. And now that like the year is over, looking back on it and being like, well, compared to what we actually got, this actually does rise in my estimation. Does that make any sense? No. Yeah. I think you're, you're, you're definitely uh, on the money there. It probably is something like that where I was like, I'm holding out for something better and not, not much better came along. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm excited for that sequel, man. I, I, we start get seeing, stuff from it soon assuming they can start filming it soon because it's got a big cast they're all busy and uh we're in a pandemic that never ends so who the hell knows when they're gonna start filming that but yeah i think I'm, it's supposed to come out like 2023 or something yeah. so yeah. yeah i'm really looking forward to that sweet uh well i watched a movie that was um i think it's probably safe to say inspired by dune frank herbert's dune the novel uh and this movie is called nausicaa of the valley of the wind it is uh written and directed by hayao miyazaki i'm sure ht would be thrilled that i'm <laughs> watching this because we she's been trying to to convince me to watch all of miyazaki stuff and uh i finally watched this one on hbo max um the the sort of downside right off the bat that i noticed is that uh there is not a japanese um track uh, like dialogue track in this uh, or available on HBO Max anyway you you're forced to watch the English uh dubbed version typically i prefer watching like the the uh, watching any movie in whatever language it was you know filmed originally and then just watch, reading the subtitles um but uh yeah only the English dub was available the the 2005 dub with um like Allison Lohman and and some of the I think Disney oversaw that that dub back in 2005 so uh I was a little bummed about that but you know whether I'm it's it was an option of like don't watch this movie at all or just watch it this way and I chose to watch it that way and uh I had a good time with it I, I think it's it's pretty good uh there's a lot of dune in this movie i think um it's about this uh this princess who uh, lives in a post-apocalyptic society where like a thousand years prior there was a massive war that like wiped out a lot of humanity and there are these pockets of survivors and different communities and things like that and there are these giant like bug creatures that uh live in a forest and a desert and um it's about basically how this girl tries to convince all of these different uh, warring tribes of people that they need to um, learn how to live together with these uh, mutant insects instead of constantly fighting all the time. Um, so there's a lot of like visual imagery that, that definitely seemed reminiscent of Dune. And uh, there's a, like a ton of stuff in here that seems like this movie inspired a bunch of stuff that came out after afterwards too. Like I just, um, in the lead up to the Matrix Resurrections, rewatched the original Matrix trilogy and the uh, I forget what they're called now the the Sentinels the um, sort of like roving uh, mm -hmm. wandering mechanical bug looking creatures the the sort of villain machine creatures in that original trilogy look a lot like the bugs in Nazca of the Valley of the Wind um, and uh, if you've ever played the uh, Nintendo Switch game, The Legend of Zelda, um, 
what is it called? Breath of the Wild. Uh, that game is basically, it's, it's almost a direct adaptation of this movie. There's so much imagery and, and, um, like gameplay mechanics and things that are that are just like seemingly ripped directly out of this film. There's uh, in in that game, um, Link, the the main character, like floats around on a glider a lot, and the main character Nasca in this movie uh, just cruises around on this badass little glider all the time. And it's just like th- there's so much um, uh, visual similarities between these properties. So uh, yeah, really good, in- enjoyable stuff. I think this was Miyazaki's second film. Uh, I still, so far of all the things that I've seen of his, prefer his first movie, which is called The Castle of Cagliostro. Um, but uh, but yeah, this was a, a really, uh, definitely a, a step up in terms of the scale and the scope. It, it sort of reminded me of Dune in that way too, where like characters are tiny up against these just massive um not necessarily structures in this movie, but uh, but natural forces and, and caverns and like underground uh, cisterns and all sorts of um, so, of cool like sort of environmental stuff. So uh, Nasca of the Valley of the Wind, I'd recommend it. It's on HBO Max if you want to check that out. And then the only other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, for Christmas, I got a copy of Uncharted The Lost Legacy. And Uncharted is my favorite video game series of all time. There are four games uh, in the sort of main saga, if you want to call it that. And Uncharted The Lost Legacy came out in 2017. It's sort of a, a standalone expansion, like a spinoff of the the fourth game, um, where the main character, Nathan Drake, who's going to be played by uh, Tom Holland in the upcoming movie, is not in this uh, game, Uncharted The Lost Legacy, at all. So it's the first of the Uncharted games to not feature that character. And instead it focuses on Chloe Frazier, who's this sort of, um, you know, one-time love interest of Nathan Drake and a, a, a mercenary, not a mercenary, but a, a treasure hunter in her own right. Uh, and she teams up with this ex-mercenary to, uh, to try to find this, um, this Indian tusk of Ganesh. And it's uh, the just a really beautiful looking game. The, um, you know, as a fan of all of the Uncharted games, it's basically just like more of the same, which I don't know if anybody would complain about that because you, you sort of know exactly what you're getting yourself into when you, uh, when you, you know, plug it into play it. But, um, I found it to be, uh, yeah, just a really enjoyable, like, uh, I, I loved having more of this universe to sort of get lost in. So, uh, I would recommend it if you're a fan of the Uncharted stuff. Um, I, didn't really know what this game was because I had just played the four previous games. I was like, oh, I don't know. Is this is this thing like a, is it going to be worth my time? Basically, it's just it, uh, being described as a standalone expansion. I was like, is this just going to be like, it's going to take like one or two hours to beat this and it's not going to really be a big deal. But uh, I beat it today and I think I played it for, I don't know, almost eight hours or something like that. So if that uh, gives you any idea of um, whether or not that's it's a good bang for your buck, if you're, we have any gamers listening out there um then yeah to do with that information what you will but i enjoyed uncharted the lost legacy uh okay i think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode just a short little uh, short little chat short little combo yeah. so um yeah i think that'll do it so you can find more about some of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode slash film daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on apple google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys tomorrow.